Okay, so last time we sat down, we were talking about the Xinjiang uh, Uyghur Autonomous Region in northwest China. Yeah. I kept digging, I kept looking, and I found a few more interesting things and a bit more uh, in-depth stuff than last time. So, Okay, tell us what you learned. All right, so again, uh, Xinjiang borders Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan, and it's way kind of in the northwest desert region of China. Um. Basically, I want to give kind of some more contextual reasons for why China might be oppressing minorities in the region. Um, they see them as a problem populace that needs re-educating. So I'm going to kind of take a look first at, at what that means. But basically, the concept of re-education um, has a long history in communist China. It dates way back to the 1950s. Um, then the state kind of established the practices of reform through labor and re-education through labor. And then in the early 2000s, the government initiated a transformation through education series of classes for Falun Gong followers. Now, uh, Falun Gong is a spiritualist movement in China that most closely uh, is kind of related to Qigong and Taoist breathwork and meditation and those kinds of exercises. So they had that. But after 2014, the transformation through education concept in Xinjiang came to be systematically used in much wider contexts. Okay, so they had that, right? And then uh, they applied transformation through education to the Uyghur and other Muslim population groups. They, they began in tandem with another campaign called de-extremification that China has also been pushing forward. Now, that phrase uh, was first mentioned by the Xinjiang former party secretary, Zhang Shunqin, in 2012. So they've been kind of thinking about de-extremification, at least on yeah, paper, for, since then. Yeah. Um, okay, so then this other guy, Shen Kuangwo, he kind of put re-education into overdrive. He became the new party secretary for Xinjiang, and he kind of got in there because he was buddy-buddies with Xi Jinping, the head cheese, the top Communist Party mm -hmm. guy, the leader of the country. They were kind of friends because he would, um, you know, basically publicly say nice things about him. <laughs> which always goes over well in communism. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but mostly his expertise came from Tibet. He was in control of the oppressive measures on Tibet prior to this. Interesting. Yeah, he did a lot of things there. He pacified the region through kind of an intense combo of both securitization and pervasive social control measures, um, one of which is something called convenience stations, what those are kind of police stations that are thrown up basically on every block to make kind of a grid-style network of uh, surveillance and check-ins. So they put in 2,500 police stations. Um, and in Lhasa, the capital of Tibet, they put in 161 of these, and they were no more than 500 meters apart from each other. So wow. yeah, tons of convenience stations. Yeah, that is a lot. The Communist Party is calling it grid-style social management, which segments urban communities into easily monitorable geometric zones. Um, they also rely a ton on CCTV footage and big data collection and cell phone tracking, things like that. So that's Shen Kuangwo, but before he had already even got there, uh, that region had been seriously ramping up recruitment of police and other security officers. That kind of began in response to uh, like a three-day-long riot um, in July 2009 in uh, Urumuchi. 
that riot began as a protest, but it turned violent, lasted for several days, and People's Republic of China officials claim that a total of 197 people died, most of whom were ethnically Han Chinese, and another 1,700 were injured. Um, I don't know if you can trust those figures. I wouldn't, uh, especially because this incident was the catalyst for such a huge drive in police recruitment in the first place. Now, Human, Human Rights Watch said that at least 43 Uyghurs were disappeared in the days following the riots. Oh, wow, interesting. They think the number was much higher, but they can only confirm that 43 people went missing following that. Um, okay, so that was 2009. But between 2003 and 2008, Xinjiang advertised 5,800 police and security positions on like job postings and job boards. But after that, between 2009 and July 2016, that in, um, multiplied to 40,000. So let's just say they are really hiring a wow. lot of police and security officers for reasons. Yeah, that is a lot. 40,000 is, what was that year span you said again? That was 2009 to 2016. Wow. Yeah. So that is quite a lot. Um, the recruitment drive was also purposefully like outside of the normal police contract system, like the normal civil service system. And these new officers were hired on like contract-based positions that allowed them to basically be more poorly trained and lower paid assistant police. And they kind of built up a, we'll call it an army of those kinds of officers. Um, so that, so after Sheng Kuangwo became the new party secretary, like soon after, there was several independent reports that started coming out detailing, um, mass detentions among the Uyghur population. And that was around March, 2017, the same time period that, um, most of Buzzfeed's, uh, interviews of detainees were locked up. They were in the system at that, at time, that time. At the yeah. 2017 mark. Yes, exactly. And there was also an incriminating document that actually was published by the Xinjiang Urumuchi Party School. Now, this paper uh, recommended the creation of centralized transformation through education training centers in all prefectures and counties. And they certainly have been filling them up for sure. Uh, the paper listed three types of re-education facilities, centralized transformation through education training centers, legal system schools, and rehabilitation correction centers. So any of those three you could kind of end up in, and they're all for the purposes of what they're calling re-education. I find it, the language very interesting, especially like the transformation through education, mm. because it sounds so, I don't know, so bright and happy, you know, transformation through education. I don't know, especially for me, when I hear the word education, I automatically <laughs> yeah, associate positive transformations with education majorly. So that's obviously very specific wording. And also with the word transformation, like the word change is even harsher than transformation, mm -hmm. but you're just a slight transformation through education. Yeah, it sounds very, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it sounds so welcoming. Um, what's interesting is that uh, there's actually 74 construction bids related to re-education centers that have been found to date, just backing up that they were, in fact, you know, built, purpose-built centers for what's called vocational training. There was these yeah. construction bids that have been found. We'll talk a bit, uh, bit more about those as we go on, but I wanted to actually bring back up Adrian Zenz. He was the German scholar we were talking about last time. Yes, I remember. So most of the um, 
countries that spoke out against China were specifically citing Adrian Zen's work. That was mainly where it was coming from. And it was China Daily who criticized him in saying that uh, he was really only getting his information from one source in Turkey. Yes, exactly. Yeah, so I I looked into him a little more, verified him a bit more, and, and also heard some more of these critiques of his work. But basically, he's a German anthropologist, a researcher. He specializes in Tibet and Xinjiang province. He teaches at the European School of Culture and Theology near Stuttgart, Germany. Um, His research focuses specifically on China's ethnic policies. He wrote Tibetanness Under Threat. That's a book. He's also a research fellow for the Jamestown Foundation, um, and they work specifically on global research and analysis. Their mission statement is, the Jamestown Foundation's mission is to inform and educate policymakers and the broader community about events and trends in those societies which are strategically or tactically important to the United States and which frequently restrict access to such information. So he's working for them. They have three main publications, the China Brief, Eurasia Daily Monitor, and Terrorism Monitor. So that's what the Jamestown Foundation is all about. And... um, Yeah, he's a German researcher, but that's an American foundation. Okay, now, Zenz has been very critical of the sterilization efforts in Xinjiang, and his claims on that have been refuted by, like you said, China Daily, a few other news sources as well. One uh, Xinhua News article, which was posted on www.news.cn, CN for China, straight on that website, they posted it. Um, There they say that, The Xinjiang region, especially its southern area, has been experiencing rapid social and economic development. More and more ethnic minority women have fully enjoyed the right to education and employment and also obtained more autonomy on reproduction. So that's what they're claiming is going on there. Out of curiosity, has anyone criticized him that is outside of China? Not that I found, no. Okay. Um, They say Zen's also lied by stating that in 2018, at least 80% of the new IUD insertion procedures in China were performed in Xinjiang. Um, And I'll just quickly say, Xinjiang is the largest province in China, the eighth largest country subdivision in the world. It spans over 1.6 million square kilometers and has about 25 million inhabitants, 45% of which are Uyghur, 40% of which are Han Chinese, and the rest are other minorities like Kazakh. So Zenz is claiming that from the official Chinese documents he read and translated that 80% of IUD insertions are being performed in a place that has 25 million inhabitants out of the nearly 1.5 billion total population of China. So, (laughs) something doesn't add up. Yes. The Chinese article, they criticized Zenz. They said the number was 8.7%, not 80 but even even 8.7 <laughs> we seems accidentally like a lot. added a zero. It's actually eight, That's not right. eighty. <laughs> yeah, best of all, I like that. <laughs> the article goes on to say, the ethnic equality policies implemented by the Chinese government will definitely lead people of all ethnic groups in Xinjiang towards a more prosperous and stable future. Yeah. Be, be that as it may. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, interestingly, interestingly, China also admitted, and this is in a correspondence to CNN, they, they published some statistics to CNN. And in these documents, um, they admitted that the Uyghur birth rate has dropped by nearly one-third. Uh, 
the stats also say that there was almost 1,000 new IUD implants per 100,000 people in Xinjiang in 2018. So it's hard for them to go and say it's only 8.7%. Yeah. But basically, yeah. So they told CNN that they attribute the drop in birth rate in 2018 to improved prosperity in Xinjiang, reducing the need for its residents to have as many children. It also denied having birth control policies tailored for a single ethnic minority. Okay, I don't know if you have the answer to this, but what what is the relationship between this information and China's one-child policy? As far as I know, the one-child policy ended in 2015. Like, that's when they okay. canceled it. But their policy now is no children if you're weaker. <laughs> yes, they've changed it. Um, and yeah, so Zen's actually responded to uh, that claim, and he said, which is quite rationally in my opinion, that any fall in natural birth rate would normally take place gradually over a matter of five years or a decade. And that uh, Chinese officials claimed women that have been sterilized had actually requested the treatment voluntarily. And that, that's really, it's highly unlikely, because if that were true, Zen states here that that would mean 17 times more women spontaneous, spontaneously wanted to be sterilized in 2018 than in 2017. Yeah, which obviously Come on. does not make any sense <laughs> at all. Yeah, and so overall, Zen seems I, reliable I think me. the trend more is with populations rising and birth rates rising, not falling by drastically by one third well and if you just think about the places in the world that have had economic prosperity that usually brings with it a higher birth rate and more people migrating there not not less (laughs) i don't think that makes any sense um so yeah zens he seems pretty reliable he i listened to him talk quite a bit and he's been writing a lot of opinion pieces he had one in new york times but basically he says china can no longer dodge or deny its relentless campaign of mass internment and I think he's right on that matter. Um, the reason that he's maybe overrepresented in Western media is pretty much just because there actually isn't that many scholars of Uyghur Muslims, let alone Uyghur Muslims in that one particular region. Yeah, which makes sense. He's the only one really doing the work. Uh, yeah, there are a few others I, I found just going through this stuff. There's a Darren Byler. He's an anthropologist at the University of Washington. He studies the region. He says the detention centers are highly planned and executed. Uh, One of his quotes reads, Because of their size and their distribution across the province, we can deduce that this project is highly organized and systematic. The repetition in design, from fencing and police stations to dormitories and public gathering spaces, makes it clear that the camp system is centrally planned, or at least synchronized, rather than an ad hoc system based solely on the impulses of local officials. Which, yeah, that makes it harder to scapegoat anyone, say, it was just this one crazy guy, we'll just get rid of him and... Everything will be fine. Yeah. Is, this, yeah. Goes, this goes to the top. Uh, another's Ryan Thumb. He's a young guy. He wrote a book on Tibetan oppression as well. But one of the most interesting guys that I came across was this Sean Zhang. He's a law student at the University of British Columbia. And he's kind of been a thorn in the side of China for a while now. Back in 2011, uh, secret police actually questioned him over a number of tweets he was posting about the Chinese Jasmine Revolution, which was a pro-democracy protest in 2011. So even back then, he had secret police um, bugging Keeping him. Keeping an eye on him. Yeah, yeah. He, he's told the Globe and Mail that, he, as far as he knows, China is not monitoring his activity at UBC, but nobody really knows for sure. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah so Zhang, Zhang's big. He's, he's been up to a lot. 
He has spent like the last several years crawling through satellite images and identifying locations of detention centers, as well as destroyed cultural heritage sites. He's been really prolific. He's identified hundreds of potential sites. He would basically come home from school or work and spend at least an hour every day looking for potential re-education sites. And he was thorough as well. He would only mark it down as confirmed when he was able to uh, cross-reference it with official Chinese documents, quite a, quite a few of which are just public documents available on government websites that would be, again, the construction bids or job postings, just anything kind of related to there being a facility for this purpose. So as soon as he would cross-reference it, he would add it, and it would just be another one on his list. Um, and a lot of people are also sourcing his work too. Did you ever find any numbers, like, of how many facilities he's found, or... I did. Um, so last time we talked about kind of the 260 versus the 380, or what number yeah. it is, or it might be. Uh, it's looking like there are at least 380 facilities that have been identified, but those are not all concentration camps. They are also um, labor camps or prisons, and they don't necessarily like they I mean they're not necessarily in use right now but they have been used for this purpose and this persecution of the uyghurs okay so there might only be like maybe 100 actively in use but those would be the new ones they built the big ones the yeah ones that house more yeah. people yeah so and again the chinese government actually kind of admitted to some of this they released a white paper in september 2019 that stated 8 million people were sent to vocational training in concentration camps from 2014 to 2019, but that they have all graduated. All vocational training has been complete. Has, and it's, <laughs> it's it led, was a yeah. success. And everyone's doing great. Of course. Why not? Yeah. Um, we also talked last time in part one about the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, who were using satellite images as well to track potential locations. So kind of the update on them is that they just recently launched the Xinjiang Data Project, which maps Xinjiang's detention system, which with, uh, so their map has 380 sites on it. And these sites have been um, either built or expanded on since 2017. So work is still going on. Yes, this is an ongoing project mm -hmm. for them. Mm -hmm. And there's also been uh, media reporting the demolishment of mosques and other cultural heritage sites because they've also been doing that. Um, some, some facts I got here. Uh, they have been investigating, this is the Australian Institute. They've been investigating the rate of cultural destruction in Xinjiang. Their research estimates 35% of mosques have been demolished. A further 30% have been damaged in some way. That would be um, kind of just destroying or removing uh, specifically Islamic or Arabic architectural feature, like a dome or a minaret or something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they estimate approximately 16,000 mosques have been damaged or totally destroyed throughout Xinjiang. That would be 65% of the total. Wow. 65% um, yes. is a lot. And now now it's just demolished sites and empty lots. And is this mostly since, lots. like, 2017? Like, in recent years, this 65%? Yeah. Like, the last five or so. And Sean Zhang, one of the things he would do is he would find a satellite image from the past, like a 2007 satellite image or a 2015 satellite image mm -hmm. with a 2021. And it would just be a flat block yeah, of sand. It's gone. There would be nothing there. A further 30% of important Islamic cultural sites shrines, cemeteries, pilgrimage routes uh, across southern Xinjiang have been demolished since 2017. So this is the last three years. An additional 28% have been damaged or altered in some way. 
There's a really big important one, a pilgrimage town called Ordam Mazar. Tens of thousands of people would travel there. Uh, the site's at the edge of the desert. They would go to pray. It's one of the most important Uyghur cultural sites. It was completely demolished. It's gone. Wow. Yeah. And, like, I mean, none of this is surprising because China destroyed and ransacked at least 6,000 Buddhist monasteries in Tibet. Yes. And, again, like, the same guy is, is running the show now. He's using the same tactics. But the destruction of Tibetan monasteries goes all the way back to the Cultural Revolution. It goes, it goes way back. So they've been doing it for a, long, a longer time. But it's, it's not a surprise. It's all part of it. Well, I think it's interesting and in what you've mentioned a couple times is that um... – like, obviously, there has been, uh, China's gotten a lot of practice in situations like this, with even if you just take Tibet as an example, and I know there's other examples as well, but it's not like they just decided to do this to the Uyghurs and um, they're learning as they go. They actually have a lot of practice behind them of doing this to other cultural groups and other people, and they've really just perfected their techniques it seems like yeah the level of insecurity of the communist party is astounding <laughs> they think they could be dismantled by any religion <laughs> like, yeah they really have to anything. get rid of everything well, yeah basically that's that's what they're going for and and the key finding here is that um there has been growth in several existing facilities across 2019 and 2020 like actual building and construction has happened on these same re-education facilities 2019, 2020. So there's no way that everyone has been graduated. There's no way that this was over in 2014 yeah, or whatever why, the year the was. Growth. Yeah. Yeah. They're, no, they're, it, it continues. Yeah. It is continuing. And just to corroborate this further, there is another group um, called the East Turkestan National Awakening Movement. They also have been doing a mapping system with satellite images. They found 182 suspected concentration camps, 209 suspected prisons, 74 suspected labor camps. And their report actually gives special thanks to both Zhang and Zenz. Uh, Zhang specifically because he found some of those sites and he was informing media all along the way. And again, just in talking about the documents they've been using to back that up, um, a lot of the times it, it was public documents that have since been taken down off government websites. You can't find them anymore since they've been found and highlighted by people working on this. But um, people have been doing archiving. They've been, they've been backing things up. They've been posting it on Twitter. So even when the government removes it or the link is broken, which happened to me a few times trying to find them, um, there is still archives of this. And what I wanted really to tell you was that I went and I looked myself on Google Images. Uh, I wanted to kind of find the areas myself just to confirm if everything I had read so far was true. Okay, so what I did to find this stuff myself, I used Google Earth Pro. I downloaded the desktop app. It's basically the same as um, Google Maps satellite version, but it's a bit, bit more in-depth. Um, I went to Shufu County, where there's supposedly uh, recently they built a 10,000-person facility. So I went over to Shufu, and I found something that looked extremely suspicious. There was a compound there, and a block west of it, there was a giant blacked-out section of earth, like burnt, like scorched earth. Weird. Yes, I don't know if they were, you know, burning down an old building, several old buildings to... Um, make room for new ones mm -hmm. or what but there was a huge fire there it could have been a mass grave i don't know i don't know 
And so then I went on Baidu, the Chinese search engine, to investigate further. What I did at, at the beginning was I just t typed in the coordinates exactly as I got them off Google, and the Chinese results came back saying there is no relevant or relevant location found for that data. Yes, which is very interesting because... Well, the coordinates go somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think there is a relevant data there, but whatever. So then I just found it manually. I put the map side by side and I scrolled. I followed a mountain ridge. I zoomed in, I zoomed in, I zoomed in. I got to the exact same spot. And believe it or not, you get there and like gray tiles, the whole area blocked out. You can't see it. And this is on the Chinese system. There's pictures on one. There's censoring on the other. Obvious censoring. It is just like a stock gray image that's just like a, just a flat gray panel and it just blocks the whole area that is very crazy that it, they can just yes it's crazy <laughs> plop gray squares down wherever they want them. Call it, yeah <laughs> we don't like i mean yeah that's really unbelievable and some of the names were still showing on the map like you couldn't see any pictures but some of the names of like the businesses there were um like visible so i basically just translated them i had google translate and you know when you, if you aim your phone camera it'll show you what it says yeah so i aimed it on there and it literally said vocational school it said wow. vocational school on the spot they had blocked and covered that was a scorched earth on another place like i did expect them to be censored because that's what i had read there was gonna be gray tiles but finding them myself was a little unsettling yeah it seems amazing that someone could just uncensor censor anything they want just by putting a gray tile it's almost kind of rude that they didn't even put a little bit more effort into censoring it besides yeah just they could have photoshopped it they could have down. just left the image and then just yes. photoshopped it to look like a, a feel yes. there's some or what whatever it was before yeah. like couldn't they have just kept yeah. the data from, from 10 years ago yes put that before image there was any buildings one would think but again uh, gray tiles oh, are well, that's too much effort yeah <laughs> They're spending all their efforts on transporting people to the facilities, I guess. Yeah, I guess so. Anyway, um, so another person who goes by Uyghur Nur on Twitter, she wants to stay anonymous, but she is also one of those people that are just like saving all these Chinese documents, proving this before they can get wiped off the internet. So she's been posting them all on Twitter and archiving them. And I, I looked at one of hers that she posted. Um, she actually tweeted about it. She said... Quitting smoking or drinking should be a good thing, right? Not so much if you are a Uyghur, Kazakh, or of any other ethnicity. It could become one of the absurd reasons that land you in a concentration camp. So I looked at the document to see like, if they actually said that. And yeah, uh, number 10 of the... I guess I'll read the title first. Basic Knowledge of Recognizing Religious Extremism. 75 specific manifestations. Wow. Well, manifestation number 10 says... People who drink and smoke suddenly quit drinking and do not interact with other relatives, friends, or even parents who drink or smoke. <laughs> that means they are a religious extremist. Uh, wow. some, of the, some of the other ones, advocating the separation of Xinjiang, advocating the use of the Koran to regulate all social life, middle-aged men with a big beard wearing short leg pants, women with a mask, or close contact with each other and organizing activities in groups. Wow. Yeah. That is very There were 75 very things listed <laughs> that could get you put in one of these detention centers. That's amazing. No shorts. And you, if you smoke, you better continue. All right. That let's, is so strange. Yeah, let's move on a bit to more of the U.S. stuff. So I went back in. I looked at Biden and Trump. I wanted to see exactly kind of what the sanctions were and what they both had said. So the Joe Biden campaign, they released a statement. This is what it says. 
the unspeakable oppression that Uyghurs and other ethnic minorities have suffered at the hands of China's authoritarian government is genocide, and Joe Biden stands against it in the strongest terms. Well, I'm happy for Joe Biden. Good for Joe. (laughs) (laughs) The Trump administration stopped short of labeling it as genocide, but the National Security Council spokesman John Ulliott condemned the Chinese treatment. He said... China had committed horrific acts against women, including forced abortion, forced sterilization, and other coercive birth control methods, state-sponsored forced labor, sexual violence, including through rape in detention, compulsory homestays by Han officials, and forced marriages. Okay, so they didn't specifically call it a genocide like Joe Biden and team did. That's right. However, they are condemning all of the actions they've Mm -hmm. just decided for whatever their reasons are to not label it. Everything but the word genocide, which I guess comes with its own issues. And I don't know if uh, Trump is trying to thread the needle. He sometimes has a good relationship with Xi Jinping, or so it seems. But um, I, I don't know. Um, going forward, they did place some sanctions on top party officials, and they also uh, encouraged Canada to place sanctions as well. On October 22nd, there was an official encouragement, let's call it, but we haven't placed any sanctions yet. It was kind of a thanks for what you said in the subcommittee, um, but do more now. And if you're wondering, what they did, what their sanctions did was they put them on top party officials in Xinjiang, and basically... Their visas are blocked. They can't enter the United States. Um, They can't access any of their holdings in the United States. So if they have any money or assets or business, it's basically frozen. Uh, If they had children here, they couldn't visit them. And in response, Beijing kind of did the exact same thing. They put sanctions on Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz. So those guys will not be entering China anytime soon. Just those two? I think there was more, but (laughs) those two were the top names. Yeah, and again, um, I think a little bit <laughs> Poor like Ted Cruz. Some of those um, Communist Party officials did have assets on U.S. soil, but Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz don't have any link to China, so those sanctions are mostly symbolic. They're just retaliations, symbolic retaliation sanctions, and like with Canada and stuff, it's really important for other governments to coordinate with this because that makes the sanctions much more effective. Like, I mean, it's easy enough, I guess, to not go to one country. But if you're blocked from anywhere and everywhere, um, then it... That makes a big yeah, difference. Yeah, then it might actually do yeah, something. Yeah, even if you think if, like, Canada and the U.S. are on the same page of sanctions, then, okay, well, you're out for North America. That's, like... Exactly. That's now, enough to cause a problem. Yeah, and just in looking at, um, like, other things that Trump is kind of doing on this matter, so the East Turkestan Awakening Movement, who also had the satellite footage... They are uh, basically a Uyghur government in exile. Like, that is what the movement is. And they had compiled the satellite map, but they were also founded by a guy called Sali Hudayar. He's the prime minister of the Uyghur government in exile, the founder of the movement, and he recently tweeted to Donald Trump saying that there are thousands of Uyghurs in the United States who haven't gotten asylum status approved despite several years of waiting, and he's been urging Trump to grant expedited visas and asylum to those who fled the communist persecution. And, like, I mean, if you can't really do anything to make them stop, then at least, I guess, accept the people who have fled the persecution. So that would be a good thing Trump could do if he's reelected or something that Mr. Genocide Joe Biden could do if he gets elected. Yeah, I agree with that because at least then you're you're helping the problem. 
if you believe it's a problem, then you should be opening your arms. Yeah, and and speaking out against something is only so much. There's no actions involved yes, exactly. in that, right? So and yeah, it, yeah, I agree completely with. How that. do you be anti-immigration? If you're Donald Trump, how do you run in like an anti-immigration platform, but also give visas to all these Uyghurs? You well, can't. Well, I guess. that would be. But it would be an even stronger case if he did do something like that. You know, like I'm anti-immigration, but I can see that this situation is so bad that I need to put my anti-immigration opinions aside. You know, like that's a pretty strong statement from a Republican. That's right. And we'll be keeping an eye on if he, if he or maybe a new government comes in is going to do that. But we'll look. We'll, we should know at some point. Like, I mean, if they're going to make any moves or label any more sanctions toward China on this affair... I would assume that's going to be kind of um, one of the talking points after the election in the first few months. Yeah, and I'm sure you will update us if they do. I will. And for now, everyone, take care. Goodbye.